The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. In the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man, we're met with Larry Gopnik, who is sort of a Charlie Brown kind of guy. He's got some troubles. He's this very meek, a uh, college physics professor. Uh, he's a faithful Jewish husband. He's a father. And he's sort of a modern-day Job. His life becomes more and more disastrous with every turn. And he's just constantly asking the question, what's going on? <laughs> what have I done to deserve this? And he can't seem to find any answers as to why these things are happening. So he goes to see the rabbi. First, he's stuck seeing the junior rabbi. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's worth it alone for the scene when he goes to see Rabbi Scott. And Rabbi Scott, who's fresh out of school, starts talking to him about the parking lot and the beauty of the parking lot and how that you know, answers his questions somehow. Then he gets in to see the more senior rabbi, Rabbi Nochner. Why is all of this happening, he asks. So the rabbi says, you know Lee Sussman? Yeah, the dentist. Well, did he ever tell you about the goy's teeth? And the rabbi then goes on this big, long story about Lee Sussman, who's this Jewish dentist who finds a message etched in Hebrew in one of his Gentile patient's teeth. And he's completely thrown. What does this message mean? Is it a message from the divine asking him to do something? And so after searching and searching, he checks everyone's teeth that he knows to see if there are more messages. And he finally comes to see this very same rabbi, Rabbi Nochner. And so the rabbi who's telling this story says, yeah, he comes and he sits right where you're sitting now, Larry. And he asks, is it a sign from Hashem? What could such a sign mean? Now, if you've seen the movie or if you're familiar with the Cones' work in general, you know that the core of the dark humor that surrounds them is in this scene itself. Because the rabbi never finishes the story. He doesn't answer the question. And so Larry gets more and more exasperated. And finally, the rabbi says, these questions that are bothering you, Larry, maybe they're like a toothache. We feel them for a while, and then they go away. Larry, almost in tears, says, I don't want them to just go away. I want an answer. Rabbi says, sure, we all want answers. 
But Hashem doesn't owe us the answer, Larry. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. The obligation runs the other way. So Larry says, why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers? To which the rabbi says, he hasn't told me. I think one of the deep ironies of this film is that the God that Larry Gopnik is dealing with is this impersonal force with no real sense of compassion at best, or is maybe even a malevolent power going about causing trouble and destruction at every turn to harmless people like Larry. And the irony is that in spite of this impersonal coldness, everyone in the film, when they talk about God, uses the ancient Jewish form of talking about God. They refer to him as Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. The mere idea that God has a name, his namedness, is central to who he is and suggests quite strongly that he is not a cold, impersonal force. In our Old Testament lesson from Exodus 34, God has just passed by Moses. If we were to have gone a few verses ahead of that reading, we would have seen that God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock while his glory passes by. The people of Israel are down below the mountain. They've been wandering in the desert for some time, and at every turn, they are complaining against God and against Moses, his representative. And so God comes, we're told, and stands with Moses, whatever that could mean, to declare his name. If you have your Bible with you, you'll notice that in Exodus 34, in verses 5 and 6, Lord is spelled with all caps, but in verse 9, it's not. If you've been a good Sunday school kid in your childhood, you probably know what I'm already going to tell you. Anytime you see Lord in all caps like that, it's a gloss for the sovereign name of God. The name that he comes and declares to Moses. When you see it in lowercase, it's just sovereign, like a king, like a lord, like a baron almost. But the self-proclaimed name of God is glossed with Lord because it was a name that was taken so seriously by the Jewish people that it was never spoken. They would never say it out loud. And so that's why they began to just refer to God as simply the name. Legend has it, in fact, that the scribes, these men who had this very particular task of copying out Torah, these, these writings of Moses, the holy scriptures of the Jewish people, when they would get to writing out what theologians call the tetragrammaton, it's these four letters of God's name, they would have to stop what they were doing, wash the pen, and go take a bath from head to toe and come back just to write out the name of God, to be worthy of writing it. Names are strange things, aren't they? People have this weird way of living up to their names. I saw some friends last night at New Year's Eve, and they were telling me about their daughter, who has really got a zest for life, and I have two daughters who are going to be strong women, and so we were sort of saying, yeah, isn't it, it's going to be great when they're older and they're strong women, but for now it's a little bit tough. But they named their daughter Petra, so I thought, you kind of have no excuse here. You sort of set yourself up for that, right? 
We have this way of living up to the names that we've been given, and names can serve to define us in ways that nothing else can. If you're a parent, then you know that when you and your spouse went to name your child, there's some give and take, right? And inevitably, one name is going to come up that someone else is going to say, now, I knew a kid like that in grade school, and he just, you know, he smelled weird. We can't name it that. In Exodus 34, God has been patiently revealing himself from the very beginning down through the generations and is now telling Moses who he is. The name, the name, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This short little passage is in many ways the pillar of the entire Old Testament. The prophets especially return to this statement over and over again, turning it into slight variations, but always returning to this central feature of God, his personhood. He's a personal being. But more than just that, his personal, active posture toward the world, toward you, is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it is this exact thing that humanity has struggled against from the time of our first ancestors till now. To allow God to name himself rather than fit the names that we'd prefer to give him. In many ways, the rabbi is right when he tells Larry, Hashem doesn't owe us the answer. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. The obligation runs the other way. But I think to leave it there, as if that is the end of the fact, is to miss the beauty of Exodus 34, and more importantly, it's to miss the beautiful fulfillment of Exodus 34 in our gospel lesson for the evening. The Feast of the Holy Name seems like something that would be so straightforward, right? It's about Jesus getting a name. But as you look into it, it begins to accordion out to show the vastness of God's entire project summed up for us in this tiny little verse at the end of our gospel lesson. That God would name himself synonymous with compassion, grace, love, long-suffering, faithfulness, and forgiveness, and that in so naming himself, he is committing himself to, as the Gospel of John tells us, tabernacling among us. When God reveals himself as compassionate and gracious to Moses, he is committing himself to the incarnation, to move into the neighborhood, as it's been said. The mystery of the incarnation will require an eternity of contemplation before we could begin to understand its depths. And it is also childlike in its simplicity. Jesus came among us as one of us. He became like us in every way, but was without sin. And he did so that we might become like him. Today is, of course, January 1st. Resolutions? Anyone? Don't want to say? Okay, that's fair. I respect that. 
In another three weeks ago, we'll be faced once again with our true selves, right? Give it time, and we all know that all these great ideas that we have for the new year, you know, exercise more, read more, Facebook less, practice random acts of kindness or whatever. That's how we're feeling today, right? We're resolved. I think that the Feast of the Holy Name is a gift to us in two senses. One is for today, and one is for three weeks from now, when our resolutions have fallen flat. For today, this feast causes us to take seriously our own moral agency. Notice God's movements. He is not a controlling micromanager who keeps all real choices to himself. No, he comes as a baby, as a baby that has religious requirements that must be met. Jesus must be circumcised and must have a sacrifice offered on his behalf as he is the firstborn. But he can't accomplish either of those things on his own. Can you imagine the scandal? God is leaving to Mary and Joseph the choice to keep Christ fully fulfilling the law. They have a real choice to follow the law and do what is required. So it will not do for us to pretend as if, as if we don't have moral agency. God has invited us into his work to work alongside him with every breath that we draw to fulfill our priestly duties. If you are in Christ and part of his church, you are a priest. It is your job to reflect God out into the world and to reflect the world back to God in everything that you do, in prayer, in worship, in work, and in play. This feast is a gift for us today because it causes us to take seriously our own moral agency, but it's also a gift to us in the future because it reminds us even more fundamentally that as the confession of sin from an earlier version of our prayer book states, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, we have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. This feast day reminds us that we need God, but not just any God. We need a God who takes initiative toward us in the midst of our wandering, in the midst of our sickness. We need the name. We need the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. We need the name who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We need something more than just answers to com complex questions about the problem of evil. We need God with us. We need a God who is willing to undergo circumcision, which points to the fuller circumcision that Christ undergoes on the cross, the shedding of his blood. We need a God who would be willing to fulfill every requirement of the law perfectly so that as we pray each week, our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body. We need a God like Jesus who is willing to make himself nothing and humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
And because of his humility, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him what? The name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.